I should be. I'm on. Good morning, everyone. If you've got a Bible, could you grab it? Can you go to uh, Hebrews chapter 8, please? Look, Hebrews chapter 8. We're continuing on with our Hebrews series. We're actually going to take a break after this week um, because Christmas is coming. We're going to start our Christmas series next week. Um, There will be a tree up looking spectacular. No matter what you've said or how you felt about it, Christmas will officially be here next Sunday. It's just, that's just the way it is. I know it's, it'll still technically be November. Oh, wow. <laughs> yep, um, it'll still be November just, but for us, Christmas will be here. The girls are decorating the tree this afternoon. It's going to look spectacular and wonderful, and we'll build up to our events and those kind of bits and pieces. So it's going to be looking very Christmassy. So come festive next week. Christmas jumpers next week are allowed. All right? I'm just saying. I won't be wearing them. I think they look silly. But if you have one, you can wear them. All right? That's what that's... Okay. Before we get into what we're going to look at today, um, I don't know how you feel. I'm going to talk about a subject that's a little bit Marmite, but it's a subject I want to talk about. Um, this year, my family and I, much to my own surprise, have been camping three times. I don't know how that happened, but it has. We went camping with you guys at the Catalyst Festival way back in May. Hands up who was there for that, who went camping. bunch of you guys. It was brilliant. There were several thousand people joined together. We took it as a church. I think it was about 90 of us, the kids, went and had a great time camping. Uh, and we, we ate together and we enjoyed together and it was brilliant. And then, over the summer, my family and I went camping twice. We went camping with Matt and Phil and their family. We had a lovely family time together. And then we went on our own for a few nights and went camping. And we really, really enjoyed it. It was one of those experiences. Thought this was great when we got to go together, just just sort of the family and with friends. We we had a wonderful time with the kids. They got to play outside. They got to run. The weather was great. It was a summer. They got to just do all the things kind of that they wouldn't necessarily get to do at home when you're in and out and stuff. Uh, we got to cook food over a fire. So we made our dinners, and then we cooked marshmallows over a fire, which was brilliant. They went paddling in the stream. We went out exploring. And then at night, we got to sit and watch, kind of look at the stars and sort of wrap up in blankets in front of the fire and just generally enjoy it. And then we slept, and then snuggled in the sleeping bags, went to sleep, and then repeated it again. And it was an absolutely fantastic time. But that being said, it was nice to come home. I don't know if you've ever been camping, whether under duress or actually willingly doing it, but whenever you've been camping, and whether you've had a good time or a bad time, coming home is something special, isn't it? When you come back home, it's something great. All those things that you kind of forgotten about, you suddenly, and you take for granted, you suddenly thought, these are awesome, like running water. Oh, that's good. Hot running water. There's their indoor plumbing. Toilets that you don't have to share with anybody else and showers that you don't have to share and the fact that it's warm because you can just turn the heating on all the time and you can close the doors and those sort of things. It's a, it's a permanent home. It's that much better than what had been camping. As much fun camping can be and as much enjoyment it is, coming home to a permanent home and sleeping in your own bed is so much better. And what we're going to be looking at today is we're going to be looking at that difference between what was temporary which was good and can be great, but actually it wasn't as good as what is permanent with, in Christ. And I'm going to read, the, read a chapter 8, and then we're going to kind of unpack what that means. So if you've got your Bible, go to verse 1. 
And I'm going to read chapter 8 to you. It says, now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifice. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be priest at all, since there, are, um, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete is growing old, is ready to vanish away. Okay, big idea for what we're going to look at today. Uh, The new covenant we have with God is something permanent and much better. This new covenant we have with God is something permanent and much better. All right, what we're going to look at is this idea of covenant. If you go back to the end of the last chapter, uh, verse seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 22, it talks about Jesus being the guarantor of a better covenant. Covenant is just a word for agreement between two parties, and there's something about Christ that he is bringing together a better covenant, something we refer to as New Testament believers as the new covenant, which we're going to have a look at what that means today. And Jesus is the one who brings about this better covenant for us. So, the way this passage breaks up, we're going to look at the first few verses, looking, continuing this theme of Christ as the high priest. We looked at him last week in the whole of chapter 7, about him being a, a, a better order of priesthood, and there was used this image of this interesting character called Melchizedek, who turns up very briefly in the Old Testament. So if you missed that, you can catch that up, that's online. But this whole idea of Christ being this high priest, this better high priest, is beginning of continues into the beginning of chapter 8 and then it rolls on to this whole idea of a better covenant. So we start with the ministry of this new heavenly high priest. Now who is this? It says who he is. It says he is one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. Jesus Christ is this new high priest and what makes him better than the previous ones is actually he operates in heaven rather than on earth. He wasn't like the old earthbound priesthood, which we looked at last time, that had to operate on earth in the tabernacle and the temple and had all its own flaws to this. This was, he is now a heavenly high priest. He's exalted in the heavens. The previous high priests we saw were flawed because they had to, they were mortal, so they died. So you kept having to have a new one. 
every so often when they got old and died. That wasn't great. We found out that they had sins of their own. So when they offer, offered sacrifices on behalf of the people, they had to have, offer it on part of themselves because they were just as flawed as everyone else. They messed it up as well. And we also found out even though they offer, offered sacrifices, those sacrifices were never enough. That's why they had to keep doing it. It's like you had to keep going, keep going. More and more animals had to die because it never dealt with the problem of sin. And then we contrast that with Christ. He comes and he is one sinless in character. So there's no flaws in him at all. He's not like the old high priest. He's better. He is eternal, which means he doesn't die. He's not going to kind of grow out of office. He's not going to get too old to fulfill his duties. He is an eternal high priest. He'll always be there. And because he offered himself as the perfect sacrifice... It's done once for all. There never needs to be another. There never needs to be anyone else has to die, anything else has to die to deal with the problem of sin. He has done it completely and totally. And he is this one who is exalted up in heaven at the right hand of the throne of majesty, a position of power and authority that he occupies there. What does he do when he's up there? It says he's in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. And for every high priest is appointed to offer sacrifice, thus it is necessary for this priest to also have something to offer. Okay, this idea of the true tent. When um, the, uh, God spoke to Moses, when he brought the people out of Egypt, he said they wanted, he gave them the design to build the tabernacle, which was a really flash name for just a tent. It was, it was set up with very precise instructions, and the presence of God would dwell in the tabernacle, and it was holy. You couldn't go into it. Unless you're one of the priests, and then there's certain parts only the high priest could go into, but then only once a year because the presence of God, the holiness of God was there, and the people were sinful, and they couldn't get in. They had to sort of camp around the tent, but God's presence was in the middle of it. But that actually said the true tent, that was merely um, a copy. That, was merely, that, wasn't, that was an image of something else that was already in heaven. So it's pointing to the true tent where Christ himself is interceding. He is the one who is working out his priestly duties up in heaven. The one on earth was merely a copy of something that was up in heaven. It was something that God had revealed to Moses. And he basically said, you need to make it like this on heaven. So that's what Moses did, follow the instructions. But actually, what he does is he's in this true tent in heaven and he's offering sacrifice. And the sacrifice is himself. It's been done. Every high priest has to offer something. And the sacrifice was of himself. His one death covered everything. There was nothing extra to be added to him, nothing else to offer. Christ is the one who does it. And then we see how he serves on there. He serves in this place that is, um, um, the earthly one was a shadow and a copy. But actually he operates in this heavenly tent, which is the true one. The reason um, that he gets to operate in the heavenly one and not the earthly one is because he can only operate there because he is a heavenly high priest. He couldn't operate in the earthly tent, the earthly temple, because he wasn't from the right house. We saw that. There was a law. The law was set down. What tribe did you have to be from to be a priest? You had to be from the tribe of Levi, which was Jesus from, the tribe of Judah. He was from the wrong tribe. So under the law, he couldn't actually be a priest in the temple on earth. So he operates in a heavenly temple, a better temple. And he's, he's up there, and what was on the earth was merely a shadow, a copy. It was merely just a, something in heaven where the, the true high priest would actually one day serve. What we have on earth is merely a copy, a shadow. It's not right. It's not, it's not, it's not full. It's not the completeness of it. Last um, Friday night, I took Levi swimming. 
And when we came out the swimming pool into the car park, it was dark, it was late, but as we were going across the car park, the lights were shining on us. And Levi noticed something fascinating, is that he had like... I'm okay, good. Can you hear me? Or have I died? Switching. Turn this one off, Mike. Hello? Good. What, we, what Levi noticed was that he had multiple shadows because there were these lights all coming from different directions. So we're walking along the car park. I'm trying to get him home because it's dark and wet. He's wet and cold. And he's like, look, Daddy. And I'm like, what? And he had like three or four shadows, which for a six-year-old is really quite fun. And he started running around trying to almost get rid of his shadows and doing things. And he actually suddenly had forearms waving in the air rather than one. And he had all these multiple copies that he could do. And he thought it was the greatest thing ever. And then we started chasing around the car park. Don't encourage that as parents riding, chasing around a car park, moving cars. But we had fun. It was all very safe. Um, and we were running around trying to chase the shadows, and we had to catch each other's shadows. And he even said to me, Daddy, I can't get away from my shadow. I was like, no, that's the point. You can't. The shadow's always there. It follows you wherever the light's shining. You have a shadow. You can't get rid of it. But the reality is the shadow's not you. It kind of copies you. It looks like you. It's kind of got your outline. But it hasn't got the fullness of you. It's got no depth it's got no kind of nuance to it. It's just it's kind of flat in it. But actually, the true one, you, yourself, is so much fuller and so much deeper. Yes, there, there are similarities. And he's saying it's like that with the temple where the, where the priest served. The old one was just a copy. It was a shadow. It was pointing to something else. Your shadow points to you. It kind of looks like you, but it's not you. And, and the, the writer of the Hebrew is saying Christ serves in this heavenly tent this heavenly temple, which is the true one. And even it quotes there at the end, it quotes a bit from um, Exodus there, Exodus twenty-five forty, where it says um, what God said to Moses, make sure you make it like it. You're making a copy of something, so make sure you copy it completely. Have you ever done copying at school where the teacher says, copy what's on the board, and you have to copy it exactly? He's saying make a copy of that true heavenly tent because that's what it's being like. That's what you're doing, um, what you're putting on earth. And that's where Jesus is serving. He's our high priest up there in that heavenly place. But then not only is he the high priest, which we've seen for many chapters, this image that the author of the Hebrews is trying to get to us, he's saying actually he's, he's, he's got a better covenant for us. It says in verse 6, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Jesus is a better covenant. That's key for us to learn. Now, the covenant is like a binding agreement between two parties. For us, the most kind of obvious one is a marriage. It's a binding agreement between two people to make a, uh, to what they're going to do together. But in this case, it's between God and man. And interesting, the, the marriage analogy is actually used in Scripture to describe kind of the people of God and God, that sort of relationship they have. So there is a better agreement. And Jesus is described as the mediator. And this is legal terminology, which is kind of the intermediary who goes between two parties. Kind of if there's a dispute, the mediator comes in and tries to work together. And in this case, it was he was the mediator between us and God. He was the mediator between us and God. And we've seen that already come up in Hebrews as well, how God, uh, Jesus perfectly represents God to man and then purposely represents man to God because he was both God and man. And it says also he's the guarantor of this covenant back in 722. So he's the one who secures his ultimate success. If you're the guarantor of something, you're kind of liable for the debt. Your life, it goes belly up, you've got to kind of pay the price. And our guarantor for our covenant is Jesus. And he's already paid that price for us to establish it. So we have this new covenant that has been 
enabled for us. And then there's a lengthy quote there from uh, Jeremiah, um, which um, he, he, he puts out. And he goes through it, and in it he highlights the differences between these two covenants. It's from Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. And he basically highlights the problems with the old covenant, the way it used to work, and then the benefits of the new one that we have in Christ. And these are important for us to understand. The first thing, the old covenant, what was wrong with it? Well, it was imperfect. Look at verse 7. For if the covenant had been faultless, there would be no occasion for the second one. You didn't need a new one if the old one did what it was supposed to do. It didn't. It wasn't, it was fault, it wasn't faultless. If it had been faultless, it had problems with it. It was imperfect. So it had to be replaced by something. So the old way of doing the old covenant between man of God, we see it coming out uh, through um, Moses and the law and everything that came after was ultimately was imperfect. It didn't do what it was supposed to do. It didn't fully deal with the problem of sin because, B, it was powerless. If you look at verse 9, it says, For like the covenant that I made with the fathers on that day, I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. It didn't bring about change. It didn't bring about a change. It was an outward thing. The law was external. And it told people what to do, but all it did was highlight kind of how bad they were, and it had no power to actually transform them, had no transformative inward effect. And so it says there that actually they didn't continue in the covenant. There was no lasting change. God did these great mighty works, brought the people out of Egypt. They saw incredible things, probably some of the most incredible things you read about in the Bible, the parting of the sea, the plagues, the presence of God on Mount Sinai, the the law, and then the building of the tabernacle and the presence of God. They saw all that, the manna and quail in the desert, these incredible things, victories. But it says they did not continue in their covenant. They persisted in their disobedience, and it basically said God gave them over to it. Fine, if you want to be disobedient, you can go and be disobedient. And it says if you follow the story through, it's tragic um, of what happens with the people. They just get further and further God because there was no change of heart in them. And ultimately, if you look down to verse 13, what, how does it describe the covenant? It says it was obsolete. Obsolete. It's growing old and vanishing away. It's, it's not fit for its purpose. It's being outmoded, out of date, out of service. Have you ever had one of those, like when your, com- when your computer needs to do a software update or your phone needs to do a software update and it basically says, we can't put this on your computer. It's so old. Your, your, your phone is so old. We, we cannot download the latest. It's out of mode, out of date. Some people pride themselves in having these really old phones. It's like, yeah. But actually, they're, they're out of date. They don't work anymore. They can't connect to the Wi-Fi network, all those kind of things. That's what the old covenant is like. It just doesn't work anymore doesn't work anymore. We need to put it aside. But the good news is there is a new covenant which is incredible and is better and different to the old covenant. And what does it say about this new covenant? It's five things about this new covenant for us. The first one, it is reconciling. It is a reconciling covenant. Read verse 8. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Well, what's that referring to? Well, if you follow the story of the people of Israel, they come out of Egypt. They then go into the promised land. They then dwell in the promised land, become a mighty nation. God then raises up a king, King Saul, who's the first king of Israel. And for reasons, he goes, he goes a bit wrong. And then he's replaced by the king, King David. Under David, 
Israel expands to kind of its greatest point. He was a mighty warrior. He was a man after God's own heart. He was a poet. He wrote so many of our Psalms that we have in our Bible. This was David, the king. Then after him came Solomon, his son, the wisest man outside Jesus who ever lived. We read, we've done the Proverbs. We did a series on Proverbs, looking at the words that God put in this guy's mouth. And so, and at that point, there was a, an age of peace and prosperity in Egypt. Uh, sorry, in Israel, like they'd never had before. It was incredible. That was brilliant. Then Solomon got old and died. And then what happened? The kingdom split for divisions infighting and you had the kingdom of Israel retain that name and then you had in the south you had the southern kingdom of Judah so effectively for the rest of their history they were a divided kingdom and they spent more time divided than they than they spent together as a kingdom and both kingdoms went on and on and they just basically went downhill 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 a series of bad king after bad king after bad king occasionally a good king would appear uh, but basically bad kings and then ultimately the northern king was destroyed and then the southern kingdom was destroyed and the people were sent into exiles. But they spent most of their history um, kind of um, in division with one another, against one another. And so when God says, I will bring back both the house of Israel and the house of Judah, he's talking about bringing back together his people. He's talking about reconciling his people together which were, were, were massively split. And he's talking about bringing the people together. And ultimately, there will be a reconciliation with him as God. Our greatest problem is our relationship with God, which is dealt with. But actually, there's a recon- reconciliation on a manward level where he would bring them all back together and they would all be his people with him. And for us, if we kind of forward that into the New Testament, we go to places like Ephesians chapter 2, and it talks about this image of being one new man in Christ. If you go through the book of Ephesians, it talks about how great God is. It talks about us being saved by, uh, by grace through faith and how amazing that is. And then immediately after that, it says, actually, what that means for us as people is there's no, there's no divisions between us. We've all been brought together as one people. There's no longer, I'm better than you. The greatest kind of cultural, ethnic division at the time was the Jew and the Gentile, the non-Jew, and all that that meant. That was a religious segregation. That was a cultural segregation. That was an ethnic segregation. It was everything. He said, no, that's all been broken down. We're all one together in Christ. No matter what your background is, no matter what your ethnicity, your language, your earning potential, anything, you all come together. It is a reconciling covenant. We're reconciled to God as individuals, but we're actually reconciled together as a people and it brings us together. So whoever you are, you are welcome here. If you're a believer in Christ, we love having you. If you're a guest, we love having you too. But if you're a believer, you've been brought together as one people. And this new covenant enables that. It breaks down divisions against us because we all stand sinners before a holy God. Then we all stand as saints saved by his grace. There's no one better than the other. I heard somebody say once that the, 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 the ground at the foot of the cross is level. I don't get to stand higher than you. Or I don't get to stand lower than you. We're all level before Christ. So there is a reconciling nature to this covenant. The second thing, verse 10, it is an inward covenant. Because what's he say? He says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. There's something about God implanting something in each of us. And it's more than just like, oh, when he talks about putting it on your mind, it's not about, oh, commit it to memory. You know, like you can do memorization, you can learn stuff. It's something way deeper than that. It's something about something happening internally in our hearts. And this parallels with other promises we find in the Old Testament, like in the book of Ezekiel. 
It says, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from their heart a heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, and they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And this is this is promise from the Old Testament that one day something was coming that wouldn't be external, like the law, where it'd be written down that you could just read it and that would be it, but actually it would be internal. It would be something that would be happening in our hearts and that we would be changed from within. Because the outward, the old covenant was a law, it was an outward thing, something you could go and read, external. But he said, actually, this new covenant is going to be an internal transformation in our hearts. The next thing is that it's going to be a universal thing. If you go to verse 11, what does it say? It says, they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. So there's going to be no... It's going to be no kind of um, looking at the Old Testament. It wouldn't just be the Jewish people who originally kind of received these promises. There's always a promise that it would go wider to all people. Everywhere this offer would be made to all nations. When Jesus came and talked to his disciples, he said, he said, go into all the world, proclaim to all the nations. One of them is our nation that's had the good news reclaimed, uh, proclaimed to them. And actually, we would be able to know Jesus from ourselves, from the least to the greatest. So wherever you find yourself in that, whether you think you're the least or the great, we can all know God for ourselves. It's open to all this for everyone. There is no one who is too far from God's reach, too far from God's call, too far, too far from God's message of love and reconciliation. It's open to everyone, which is just wonderful news for us. Number four there, it is generous. Look at verse 12. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. That's priceless. That is a priceless promise from God. In this new relationship, under this new covenant, there would be forgiveness of sin. There will be forgiveness of sin for all his people. If we go back to the Old Testament and look at the Old Covenant, there was forgiveness in there. For sure, you see it. You, you, you hear the Lord describing it, but often there were qualifications on it. There were often um, kind of things about it. We read this bit from Exodus 34. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in a steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Often in the Old Covenant we find qualifications. There was it. If people threw themselves on God's mercy, we see but often there were, there were things that come with it because the covenant wasn't perfect. There were things, there was the, the, the sacrifices never quite dealt with all the problems. They were always pointing forward to something bigger something better coming but what we have now is we have in Christ we have complete grace and mercy Christ's death on the cross once for all dealt with all your sin all your problem gone as far as you see from the west it is removed from you and not only do we get um, just that kind of the fact that God has removed our sin from us, we actually receive his righteousness as well we looked at that when we did the uh, Freedom in Christ course. There were all those truths we had to proclaim and we need to remember about ourselves, about us being holy and righteous and a saint and being able to stand before God completely forgiven and enjoying that kind of, that sense of actually, man, this is what God has done in my life. He is now my father. I am part of his family. I have been reconciled to him. 
He hasn't just dealt with my problem. He's given me something new as well. And so we receive this under the new covenant. If you're a believer here, this is for you. You have nothing to fear before a holy God. He has dealt with your problem because of Christ's incredible sacrifice on the cross. His resurrection from the dead make this happen for us. And the last thing, it is an assured covenant. If you go and look at verses 8 to 12... Count how many times you see the phrase, I will. I will. And that's God speaking. I will. I made it six. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of Egypt by the hand. Uh, sorry, took them out by the hand, bring them out of Egypt. For they did not continuing my covenant so I showed no concern for them declares the Lord for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares Lord I will put my laws into their minds and write them in their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and I will not and they shall not teach each one to his neighbor and each one to his brother saying know the Lord for they will all know me from the least to the greatest and I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more six God is speaking there. Who is the one who's going to make this covenant work? God. It's all down to him. He's the one who's doing the work. He's the one who's doing the legwork. The the fulfillment of this is not based on us. It's not based on your performance. It's not based on how good you are or whether you came to church this morning. Let's look around and see who's not here. You know, let's tut at them. You know, it's not based on that kind of performance. It's based on the fact that God is the one who is making it happen. He is the guarantor of it. He is the one who's behind it. He is the one who's making it work. He is the one. So we are completely assured. Our salvation in Christ is assured. We can be safe and secure now. Who has started the good work in us will carry it on to completion. We have nothing to fear in that. We are to keep going and keep walking forward with it, but actually we know that ultimately it's down to him and we are going to be saved. And we're going to stand before that. So that is awesome. That is so much better than what the saints of old had. We are part of this new covenant and it's something to be rejoicing in and, and giving praise to God for. Okay, let's just end with a little bit of application for us. Three things I just want to just to go through and kind of highlight for us and then we'll finish. The first one is reconciled to God and man. If you're not a believer here and you've come along and you've joined us, it's wonderful to have you here. Really do appreciate it. Um, I hope you're having a good time. But if you're not a believer here, you need to become one. <laughs> That's it. It would be remiss of me as a leader of the church to say anything else to you. You need to become a Christian. The reason for it is because at the moment you stand under the wrath of a holy God because you know there are things in your life that you need to get dealt with. You know there are things in life where you have gone wrong. There's no th- your things in life where you have failed. You failed your own standards, let alone God's holy, perfect standards. And you need to repent of your sin, which just means turn away from it, and you need to choose to follow Jesus all the days of your life. You need to receive forgiveness. You need to receive cleansing. You need to receive new life. And you need to follow him. If you are a believer here, my question is, are you enjoying it? That's not a trick. Are you enjoying being a believer? Do you recognize what we have in reconciliation with God? Are you coming to God as your loving Father who just adores you 
and wants to know you and spend time with you and be good to you and reveal his grace and mercy to you day after day after day after day. Or even when I'm saying this, do you, does that make you squirm and feel uncomfortable? Do you have the wrong image of our, our Father in heaven? He's not an angry headmaster who wants to catch you out and hurt you. I've been through school. I went through the school system, so I know what it's like having this, you know, the scary headmaster, the scary teacher who's trying to, whenever they want to talk to you, they tell you. I used to be a teacher, primary school teacher, and even when my boss, the headmaster, said, Stuart, could I have a word? Can you just come in here? I just want a quick word. I, that terrified me. When the, the headmaster said, and this is, I'm an adult. I'm like, what are you? But she said, she, I remember one lady, and my, my caretaker, she was this lady caretaker in one of my schools, and she was a little bit of a, she thought she was very funny. Um, and she would say to me, she'd just come up to me and go, Stuart, Mary, Mary's my head teacher. One of my head teachers said, Stuart, Mary's looking for you. And then she'd go, and she doesn't look happy. And then she'd just walk off. And I'd be like, What? You do, what? And I'm just like, oh no. And then of course, I'm just like, I'm freaking out thinking, Mary, oh my God, what am I done? I'm just going through my mind. What have I done wrong? What could I possibly have failed at? And then eventually, I would just, I would get so kind of wound up, I would fly into the head teacher's office and say, Mary, you're here, you're looking for me. And she'd look at me and go, no. No, why are you here? And I was like, Jan told me you're looking for me and you're really cross. And then she'd get this look on her face. And I'd be like, right, there's nothing. Is it? I'm going to go and kill the caretaker. You know, but even but just the threat, the fact that the headmaster was not happy with you just made me just want to die. And even when she'd come and speak and say, Stuart, can I have a quick word about it? I'd just be like, ah, what have I done? God's not like that. But as Christians, we can somehow sometimes have that view of him. He's waiting to trip us up. He's waiting just to catch us out. He's waiting just to, to whack us every time we fail. God doesn't want that for you. He's a father who loves you. He wants to spend time with you. He wants good for you. He wants to help you. He wants to give grace and mercy. We've already had in Hebrews that call, come to me. Come before my throne boldly, it says, isn't it? To find grace and mercy in your time of need. God is like that. And so if you're going to be reconciled to God, do you, do you live in the good of that? Do you live in the good of that? What about being reconciled to man? As believers, we should first and foremost be reconciled to God and live in the good of that. And keep our relationship with God open and well-maintained. But actually, what about our relationship with one another? Let's be honest. Even in not a huge church like that, they're annoying people around, aren't they? Aren't they? Hands up who thinks that. Yeah? If you haven't put your hand up, it's probably you. I'm just saying. You're probably the annoying young one looking at you. Like, okay. Everyone at this point looks dead ahead and doesn't look to the side. Because they don't want to be like, it's you. It's you. We can fall out with each other, we can get things wrong, we rub each other our own way, we can be rude, we can be short, we can be arrogant, and we can be selfish. We can do all those things wrong. It can happen in our family, like our own actual family. It can happen in our extended family, our church family. It can happen with colleagues at work. It can happen. But as Christians, we are called to be people who reconcile, people who do what we can to live at peace with one another, to work things out. The Bible says if you have a problem with someone, you're to go and talk to them and try and work it out. It says if you think they have a problem with you, guess what? You've got to go and do the same thing. You've got to go and talk to them and work it out. I think you have a problem with me. Let's talk about it. We're to be men and women who seek to reconcile with one another as Christ reconciled with us when we were the ones completely at fault. And so I want to challenge you. You know it's you if you're in that situation because... God's prodding you right now with that person. Do what you can to reconcile, to seek forgiveness, to work things through. What about the next one? Inward transformation. 
Are you aware that you have been transformed? Are you aware of that? If you are a Christian, if you've made that commitment to follow Jesus, if you've repented of your sin, if you've turned away from living life your way, chosen to follow God, accepted his grace of forgiveness, received the Holy Spirit, walking life with him, are you aware that you have been utterly and completely transformed? 2 Corinthians 5 says, if anyone is in Christ, that's just their way of saying being a Christian, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold the new has come. A fundamental shift has happened in you that is beyond anything else that could happen in this world. I've been through change in life as you grow older. You go through physical changes. I've been through big changes in relationships. I got married. I've had children. Lots of things have happened. I've had different jobs. I've moved house. Lots of things have happened in my life that have caused shifts in how I think, how I see the world. Good things, also bad things. Bad experiences, they shift things. But nothing compares to becoming a Christian, to the transformation that happens internally in you. You are moved from death to life, and the Bible says. You were once dead in your sins. You're now alive in Christ. The kingdom of darkness, now the kingdom of light. You move from being a sinner to being a saint, from being unrighteous to being holy before God. All these things have happened to you. And my question is, are you, do you, are you aware of that? Do you live in light of that? Do you say, actually, that's who I am now? I'm not just, it's not just an external thing. Being a Christian isn't just, well, if I come to church and sit here, I must be all right. If I bring my Bible, that must, that must make me good. Some of you didn't bother bringing your Bibles to you, so you're obviously second-class Christians. Those who did, you're first. And when I mean Bible, I mean proper Bible, like a book. Not This is not a Bible. This is just a phone. A book, I mean, that means you're a proper Christian. If you've been baptized, then you're like uber-Christian. And if you did something good and brought something to the food bank, then whoa, you've just made it. But they're all external things. There's nothing wrong with any of them. In fact, they're all good in their own way. But actually, the fundamental thing is, do you realize you have been utterly transformed? Utterly transformed. Even if you've been a believer moments, minutes, weeks, you have been as transformed in the fundamental nature than you've been a believer for 50 years. Because something awesome happened in your life. You are partaker of this new covenant. The law of God has been written in you. You've been given, the old heart has been taken out of stone, a new heart of flesh has been coming out. The Holy Spirit himself lives in you. You are a temple of God now. And you're part of his people, the bride of Christ. Something incredible has happened. And this is something we have to battle in our mind with. It's what the Freedom in Christ course is all about. There's one running now, and I'm hearing great stories about it. We ran it as a church a while back. It'll come round again. But getting this stuff in our mind to understand it and believe it. To have faith and say, this is what God says about me. The Bible says it's true. I believe it's true. And I will live in light of that. And I will not be believe the lies that come against that. But do you grasp that as a believer? If you're struggling with that, we'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk to you. We'd love to help you grasp the truth. And the last one, assurance from God. Do you know that it doesn't depend upon you? Do you live life thinking everything depends upon you? Do you live life in a way that I'm thinking, I must do, I must do, I must work harder, I must do more, I must pray more, read my Bible more, tell my friends about Jesus, work harder, be a better husband, be a better wife, better parent, better friend, colleague, boss, etc., etc., etc. Do you live that life thinking, if only I work harder, then God might find me a bit more acceptable, a bit more kind of acceptable towards him? It doesn't depend on you. It depends on God. 
He did it all. In fact, that's the fundamental difference between the covenants. When you look at the old covenant, there was a lot of do, wasn't there? Do this sacrifice. Go to this place. Wear this stuff. Don't do that. In Christ, we have done. And I know out of done, there comes things we need to do. We read the epistles, but they all begin with done. Jesus said, it is finished. It's done. I've, I've, I've sorted it. Out of that, we then do a whole bunch of things, but we're motivated by grace. We're motivated by the assurance that it's already sorted. So even when we mess up, and we will, it doesn't matter because done has happened. And we have that assurance from God. And if you read that passage again, if you've got a Bible, I'll accept if you've got it on your phone. But if you can find the passage and re- look at that one from verses 8 down. Actually, probably more like verse 10 down. I just want to spend the last little bit just looking at that and trying to do something practical out of that. But if you reread that section and you replace your name in it, do you get the assurance that God is speaking to us today? So let me just roll you through this. This is what happened if I put my name in. It says, For this is the covenant that I've made with Stuart. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in Stuart's minds and I'll write them on Stuart's heart. And I will be Stuart's God. And Stuart will be one of my people. And they shall not teach each other one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for Stuart shall know me. For I will be merciful towards Stuart's iniquities, and I will remember Stuart's sins no more. That's powerful. That's what God says about me today. That's what his word says about each one of us who is a believer. And what I want to do is put it up on the board there. That's it. And I want us to just take a moment to reflect on that and then we're going to say it it's going to be a bit awkward when we come to name just so you're clear when I've written name you know what you've got to do there don't you you don't say name you say your name it's just so we're clear when you teach five roles you have to be that clear all the time or they'll just sit there and they'll just go you know I'll put my law in name's mind no your name anyway we're going to say this together and I want you to put your name in where it says as a kind of declaration, this is what God has done in my life. And what I want to ask you to do each day this week, and I've already started you off here, so one, you're going to get one out of the way, and then six more, is just to wake up in the morning, you bookmark your uh, Hebrews 8, and just say this to yourself, remind yourself. And through that, you will get this, though, you remind that you've been reconciled to God a man, that something has happened internally in you, a great transformation, and you have that assurance. Six lots of I will in there, that God's saying, I've got this, I've got this. You don't have to worry, you just have to follow me. So do you want to stand up? Maybe the band wants to get ready and then crane their necks to look at it. And I'm going to lead us through it. And I want you to, when we come to your name, I want you to put your name in. So I'll read it through the microphone, and then when I come to name, I'll leave a space, and you can all say your name. And we'll go through it together, and then we're going to worship God. But I'd love you this week. Hey, sausage. Asher's back. That's good. That's good. All right, shall we go together? One, two, three. For this is the covenant that I will make with. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in mind and write them on hearts. And I will be God. 
and shall be one of my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for shall know me. For I will be merciful toward iniquities, and I will remember no sins no more. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for a new covenant. Lord, I want to thank you for that powerful agreement with us that the old one has gone and the new has come. I thank you that we are reconciled to you and reconciled to our fellow men. I thank you for a great inward transformation that has happened. I thank you that this offer is available to all, regardless of who they are, regardless of their background. Lord, I thank you for your abundant generosity in the forgiveness of sins and all that means, Lord, and I thank you for the great, eternal, unbreakable assurance that you will cause this to come to pass in our lives. We don't stand on rocky ground. We stand on a firm foundation in you. We love you and we praise you. And God's people said, Amen.